Being Frank, Chapter 10, Other Sheep, read by Nathan Zampronio. Frank, there's a telegram under the door. We were checking the unoccupied mats, something we hadn't done for weeks. It's from Australia. Well, who would be sending a telegram from Australia? He tore it open, read it and passed it to me. Would you be available to preach at the Toowoomba Christmas Camp commencing Boxing Day, wrote Tom Whiting. Will you go, I asked. Well, I'd love to if it could be arranged. Can I come with you? I'd been planning to go to Australia in September, but I was still a long way short of the fare. By Christmas, I'll have enough money. Australia fascinated both of us. Acres of deserts, thousands of kangaroos, cuddly koala bears, though some friends had said that it was not as nice as people thought, and snakes. I didn't think of people. Frank did. He'd heard of the needs of the church in this vast country. He wanted this to be the time when God would again meet the people's needs with signs and wonders following the ministry, and I would be privileged to share the experience. I'd booked the seats on the plane. They weren't to know that I needed another $200 for the fare. Franks would be paid, of course. Somehow I knew I'd be in Toowoomba at the Yukana Vale Camp in Queensland, Australia. Here I come. When Frank boarded the old Lockheed Electra, I was with him, as well as our two boys. When we touched down at Sydney Airport, Brian, with his nose pressed hard on the window, said, Can't see any snakes, Dad. But there were other creatures, not at the airport, but certainly in Queensland, Myriads of flying beetles, mosquitoes large enough to carry a man off, or so the Australians said. Oh, and the flies. Persistent little beasts, which stuck to our faces in spite of our efforts to drive them off. When Frank stood up to speak the first night, he put his hand on his hip and quickly removed it as though he'd felt something wriggle. Everybody bow your head and close your eyes while we pray. As heads dropped in prayer, Frank brushed his hand across his hip sweeping the creature into the air over the audience. How was he to know that Christmas beetles were not included in the list of Australia's dangerous creatures? Frank prayed earnestly for the blessing of God to fall on the meeting, regaining his composure as he did so. With this introduction over, Frank forgot the insects as he plunged into preaching. That night, Jesus healed a pastor's wife of a long-standing back complaint. He even prayed for an 11-year-old suffering from asthma, and when he vomited all over the floor, Frank realised for the first time that sickness can sometimes be the result of demon possession. He looked at the scriptures. Yes, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles confirmed it. Day after day, Yukana Vale, Aboriginal for Valley of Praise, rang with the praises of God's people as revival swept the camp. Older saints, compared the meetings with the revival in the early years of Pentecost, when the Good News Hall in Melbourne echoed with the voice of an English evangelist, Smith Wigglesworth. The good news of God power at work in the camp spread throughout Australia, opening many doors for ministry in the future. Our final meetings were in Inverell, New South Wales. The temperatures soared to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, almost more than two Kiwis could bear. Phew! I'm glad I'm not going to hell, Frank muttered. Again, God touched the lives of the people with his miracle power 
but one miracle never came. Henry Gallus, a well-known Pentecostal, had two problems. He needed new teeth, and he didn't believe in people falling under the power of God. He came once more for prayer, asking God for a creative miracle. He fully expected the new teeth to grow. When Frank prayed for Henry, he fell face downward, nose pressing on the floorboards. I could suppress, scarcely suppress my giggles as I watched his toothless mouth speaking freely in tongues. Henry was big enough to admit he had been wrong. May that year brought a second visit to Australia. Frank had heard of the revival which had broken out in Launceston, Tasmania. Pastor Worley, the evangelist responsible, needed to return to America, leaving two Australian pastors, Norman Armstrong and Gerald Rowlands, with the responsibility of the work. They felt that another evangelist was needed to keep the momentum rolling. But who? Norm remended Frank's ministry in Toowoomba. He could do it, he thought. As a result of Norm's phone call, Frank packed his bags once more and flew to Tasmania, believing that the evangelistic vision God had given him for Lower Hutt was exploding into something bigger than he had dreamed. The revival in Launceston had not subsided, but increased. This is entirely new Holy Ghost work, Frank wrote. It is an experience indeed to see the great importance these people put on things which to you and me are everyday occurrences. There had been no manifestations of the Spirit in the public meetings until last Sunday when I brought a tongue message and interpretation. The congregation was speechless and overawed at such a glorious thing happening in their midst. On Sunday, there were three tongue messages and interpretations by new Spirit-filled Christians. It appeared that God was taking over the police force when seven policemen and their families turned to the Lord. More healings have occurred than in any other campaign I've conducted, he told me in a letter. I knew Frank was happy. The friend who told me I might as well leave the suitcases out was right. The next time I packed them, Frank was off to Apia, Western Samoa, to dedicate a new church. Calvary Temple's congregation overflowed to the outside. Each window was filled with curious faces trying to see what was happening on the inside. The choir of a hundred island voices singing in harmony brought tears to Frank's eyes. But when he saw these lovable, friendly people coming to receive Jesus as Saviour, the tears flooded forth. Most Samoans go to church on Sundays, Frank wrote, but their ministers smoke and some drink. The churches have bingo parties to raise funds, but the people don't hear the glorious gospel message. Praise God, the Pentecostal fire is burning and hundreds are turning to Christ. 246 in this crusade. They are leaving dead churches for life in Calvary Temple. And life there was, as the cook found out. With the help of Billy, a 12-year-old boy, he was busily preparing the meal to be served at the end of the service. Billy, I'm out of salt. Will you get me some from the house? Billy ran off, but decided to look in, the, in on the meeting on the way past. As he peeped through the door, Frank looked straight at him. You need the Holy Ghost, he said. Straight away, he prayed for him. When the cook realised that Billy was a long time coming back, he went searching for him, and he found him lying flat on his back, on the floor, speaking in a strange language, oblivious of everything. 
I don't know what the Palangi, white man, prayed, but I do know that I can hear perfectly a man, deaf for 24 years, told Pastor Fatiolofa, Calvary Temple's pastor. The evangelist's greatest farewell gift came from a young man who put his arms around Frank's neck, his tear-stained face against his cheek. In broken English, he said, I have no money to give you as a parting gift, but as you leave Apia, I leave, I give you the gratitude of my heart for introducing me to the Lord Jesus. In Nadi, Fiji, Frank learned the sacrifice expected of the missionary when he had to sleep on boards covered by a blanket. Then, after a sleepless night, to be called at 4am for a prayer meeting was more than he could stand. Pastor Nathaniel had to pray alone. Frank had plenty of time to pray before the first meeting began in the evening. The marketplace buzzed with excitement as the meeting progressed. Nearby, a denomination opposing Pentecost organised a rally of their own. Frank chose to ignore them. He wasn't in competition with anybody who but was there to preach the gospel, which he did with the aid of two interpreters translating the message into Hindustani and Fijian. When Frank shouted, they shouted. When he jumped, they jumped. People, unable to resist such enthusiasm, came running from the opposing rally to see what was going on. Many of those who gathered were Hindus, and to take a stand for Christ meant excommunication from family and friends. But still they came. The sick flocked forward for prayer, and so did the curious onlookers. It was hard to tell the difference as the sick were healed, although a 14-year-old boy kept shaking his head at the noise as he was delivered from a deaf and dumb spirit. Frank's overseas journeys began to read like a travel brochure when, in 1966, the church sent him on a fact-finding mission, which would circle the globe and lay a foundation for future ministry. He was to look at the way missions and Bible colleges operated. Although the church paid his fare, he would need money to provide shaving cream when his supply ran out. Perhaps a film, the bank teller, looked aghast that anybody should consider a six-month journey with only $200 in his wallet. Even that amount scraped our bank account clean. Be sure to pray for me, he told the family as we said goodbye, right often. Six months apart from the travels, on a world map it looked like a very long way. His first stop was Manila in the Philippines. What would he do if our old friends Dowell and Dorothy Walker were not there to greet him? But they were. Frank knew nothing of culture shock, but now he experienced scenes which stirred him to the depths of his spirit. Dowell took him through the stifling heat to a large Roman Catholic church. There, Towering above the worshippers was a statue of the Black Christ and a lesser statue of the Apostle Peter. A seemingly endless line of people crawled in from the street and down the aisle until they could kiss the feet of the Christ. Some were covered in sores and others were sick. Indignation welled up in Frank's heart while tears rolled down his cheeks. Dal, I'm going to tell these people that Jesus can heal them without all of this humbug. Frank, you can't do that. You'll get thrown out. The scene still challenged Frank. 22 years later, he travelled on to Mindanao, where he slept on the floor with the rats and then to Calamba to visit a Bible school with 51 men and women who seemed possessed by the unquenchable fire for God, he said. 
The singing is wonderful with mighty praise and worship. Although they have little of this world's goods, they do enjoy the abundance of God's grace, he wrote us in a letter. There was opposition from another church. They organised a film show right beside us. Finally, they lost much of their crowd to the preaching and the sight of God instantly healing a blind man and restoring the hearing of a young boy. These were only two of many miracles, and I cannot say how many gave their lives to Jesus. Frank's letters were inspiring. Dowell and Frank boarded a jeep for the long haul back to Manila. This was the first time that Frank had travelled with two trussed pigs, filthy, dirty and continually emanating, ear-splitting squeals. Beside him sat a young boy holding a rooster. Frank reached over to stroke its feathers. Poor thing. Someone will probably be eating it soon, he thought. Well, it wouldn't be as bad as that bird's nest soup or some of the food he'd scraped out the window to the dogs when his hostess wasn't looking. Every day is quickening my pulse for missions, Frank wrote home. This country's needs are so great. Poverty, and worst of all, its idol worship are terrible, as is the hypocrisy of the established church. I'd like to see some of our dedicated young men on this field. Dowell and Dorothy are two of the best missionaries I know. To hear Dorothy praying in the early hours of this morning makes me weep. She's a real intercessor, he wrote. Hong Kong was a further shock. As the plane dropped down between the high buildings, the density of Hong Kong's housing became a reality. In 1955, the slum area of the squatters' village still existed, and the walled city was at its worst. Frank's meetings arranged for Hong Kong had fallen through. Instead, he found himself speaking in a mission to drug addicts. Kay Locke, a petite slip of a woman with a fearless faith in God, was the chief missioner. Her husband worked to keep them and to support the mission. Frank fought with his emotions as he walked down the stairs into a small hall jammed with 15 to 18-year-old drug addicts. The words of take the name of Jesus with you and there's power in the blood sung in Chinese had new meaning for Frank. Kay wrote his text on a blackboard. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. John 14 verse 6. Seven emaciated and trembling scraps of humanity reached out to that life in a grim struggle to escape the horrors of addiction. The narrow, dark alleys of the walled city were filled with danger, yet Kay walked fearlessly, guiding Frank through the dangers. I've never seen anything so terrible. The stench and filth and nauseating, he wrote. Rats run around our feet and children, seemingly hundreds of them play amongst the filth. We slipped on the slime as we walked along miles of alleyways, what a hell on earth! Frank's spirit was grieved as he thought of the complacency of the people at home. Drug addicts lying everywhere on the ground, on wooden shelves, anywhere that they had had their fix. Most were motionless, like corpses, oblivious to everything. I leaned over one precious teenager for whom Christ died and wondered if he was dead. Then I saw the artery pumping in his neck. Could you have looked and not wept? he asked in a letter to the church. They climbed steep stairs to an upper floor. There, in a well-kept and spotlessly clean house about five by five feet, a radiant 84-year-old Chinese lady lived. She had committed her life to Christ four years ago. And on this day, she complained of a toothache. But when they looked, she hadn't a tooth in her mouth, but a tiny splinter of tooth working its way through her gum. Come, Granny, 
I'll take you to the dentist. Kay took her arm, helping her along the dark alleys to a brightly lit doorway. The dentist's surgery was spotlessly clean and well set up. Here, a young American Christian missionary dentist devoted his life and talent to helping the poor. In the final meeting in Hong Kong, a convert sang happily, but the twitching and restlessness of drug withdrawal had begun. Could anything be worse than this? Frank wondered as he boarded the plane for India. But India was as bad or worse. For the first time, Frank saw people sleeping on the streets. Pune, in 1966, was a city of millions, and not one church of any denomination preaching a clear message of ye must be born again, let alone the wonderful truths of the full gospel so precious to us. Pam and Graham Truscott, our friends from New Zealand, told Frank. Food parcels from home made it possible for the missionaries to live. Frank renewed his commitment to make Lower Hut a springboard for missions, a centre reaching out to the world. He loved these Indian people but hated the conditions they lived under. India is a country like the gods they worship, Frank says, but note the measure of prosperity the believer experiences compared with the poverty of so many unbelievers. The spirit tree next to Graham Truscott's home kept on shaking and whispering, holding people in bondage, but the Holy Spirit was bringing light and life. Bangalore, a city 500 miles south of Bombay, was Frank's final stop in India, and it nearly was final. Here he ministered in the Assemblies of God Bible College by day and in public meetings at night. American missionaries, the Rev and Mrs Dillingham, pastors of the local church, and the principal of the college was the Reverend McDermott, and he'd been crying to God for a real move of the Spirit. It's so difficult for the people of southern India to receive the baptism, they told Frank. On that first night, God moved in power and five were baptised in the Holy Spirit. Immediately, the atmosphere in the college changed. Conviction spread to another student who came up to the altar call and cried for two hours. What's the matter? Frank asked him. I'm a third-year student and not even saved. Then why do you live a lie? Because this is somewhere to live and I can get food, but it'll be different now. Frank was shocked by a third student who never smiled. At last, Frank asked him why. My father is a Presbyterian minister, and he told me that I'd get good training at this college, but I don't believe in Pentecost, he confessed. You will receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit at 9pm next Friday, Frank told him. That was the way it was. This young Presbyterian fell to the floor and rolled like a barrel for two hours, speaking in tongues the whole time. The public meetings at night were crowded. At the end of one meeting, a young man shouted out, What right have you to preach this, Jesus, to Indian people? With eyes flashing, his face angry and fists clamped by his side, he pounded down to the altar. He's going to kill you, the Holy Spirit whispered. Frank took two strides towards this hostile man. With his forefinger pointing straight at his enemy, Frank began to speak words of knowledge, revealing the hidden sins of the young man's heart. He took several steps backward, Frank following up his advantage. Suddenly, the man dropped into a chair, yelling loudly as he could, Jesus, I didn't believe in you, but now I do. Save me from my sin. Frank reluctantly turned his back on India. He wished he was going to Madras with Graham Truscott instead of Israel and London. Still, 
two days rest in the land where our dear Lord ministered, died and rose again, as Frank described Israel, was like a refreshing shower. Frank prayed, not thy will, but thine be done, in the garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus had done. Disgusted with the hypocrisy and false information of the place, he longed for London and some good, honest British life. From the moment he touched down at Heathrow, he appreciated the friendliness of the people. This is like coming home, he said to himself, but the November weather was foggy and cold. They haven't even had any summer and now winter is setting in, he said in his next letter home. But I do love the country, although the feeling of defeat invading the political scene appears to be invading the church. This is a tragedy and I find it very depressing. By the time he visited England again, it was 1985 and the spiritual climate was changing. England was awakening to life in the spirit, although some pastors could not accept what was happening. Others, straining to press into God, wanted to leave the assemblies of God. Stay in the fellowship, Frank urged them. Stay the same as I did years ago and let God use you to bring life in Christ. Some stayed, some didn't. Standing shoulder to shoulder is the best way for the church to do battle with the devil if it wants to set the captives free. Frank found America seething with evangelists, but he wondered what they were accomplishing. When he talked with Billy White of Tonawanda, New York, about meetings in his church, the first question that Billy asked was how much did Frank charge? Nothing. I don't put a price on the gospel. Frank was amazed at the question. But you must charge something. All evangelists do. I don't, Frank replied. Six months had flown by as Frank turned towards home. How was he ever going to settle into a small church program? My sights have been so lifted and my vision so enlarged, I doubt if the church will be able to take one half of what I envisage for the future, he said. The vision stretched to other nations and the challenge of increased missionary giving. Whatever culture you are, the people are the same, with the same problems and the same hurts, and they love their liberty of the Lord except for a few old diehards to refuse to get out of their rut. It's the ministers who stop revival, not the people, Frank accuses. He had been startled at the lack of Pentecostal power. In so many countries, even as late as 1988, the missionaries have left strong evangelistic churches, but are often legalistic with no knowledge of how to operate in the spiritual gifts. This didn't stop Frank. He feared no man and moved as the Holy Spirit directed. I've been asked to speak at a youth camp in Sydney, he said showing me a letter which he'd received that day. I appreciated his anticipation of the meetings, as I knew that Frank loved ministering to young people. He organised his church meetings well ahead of time and bought his tickets, and then the blow fell. Sorry, we're not permitted to have you come. The state executive has ordered us to cancel your visit. Members of that council would eventually come to be good friends, but at the time... They could not see what God was seeking to do. Why argue? Once more, Frank believed that he would see God's justification. It's only the Western world with its sophistication which does not receive freely from God, Frank alleges. The fulfilment of the vision still continues as the challenge of other cultures continually confronts our society. Frank has a heart for God's other sheep. My right arm sometimes grows weary of waving goodbye, but we did make a commitment 
never to withhold each other from the war as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That ends chapter 10. A note from the narrator. As a work of fiction, I was prepared to read this so that the memory of this rare tome would not pass. But my encourage, my encouragement to you is do as I do and don't believe a word of it.